Hello, it's Peter here. It's been a busy few weeks for me because my new book, Life, Liberty and the Pursuit of Happiness, has come out. This means a lot of extra work which has been keeping me on my toes, but the plan is to have a nice new episode for you about that book next week. For now, though, I wanted to give you another little treat. We've been enjoying dipping into our archives recently, and here's another favourite old episode. It's Violet speaking to the Samuel Johnson prize-winning author Philip Hoare about Albrecht Durer. There's so much here for you to enjoy, and here it is. I'm Violet Muller, and this week we're going to meet one of the most influential artists of all time. You could hardly move for talented painters in the Renaissance period, Many of them are still household names today, and rightly so, but one or two stand out from the crowd. They inspire obsession centuries on and possess cult status. Albrecht Dürer is one of these rare creatures, the foremost artist of Northern Europe in this period. His depictions of the rhinoceros, the young hare, and the mysterious symbolic melancholia are some of the most famous images ever created. In 1520, Dürer was in a state of flux, on the run from the plague and on the lookout for distraction, when he heard that a huge whale had been beached off the coast of Sealand, so he set off to see it for himself. This trip is the starting point for Philip Hoare's captivating book, Albert and the Whale, inspired by his own personal fascination with the sea and its inhabitants. In 2009, he won the BBC Samuel Johnson Prize for non-fiction with Leviathan or the Whale. Hoare, professor of creative writing at Southampton University, weaves a lyrical, dreamlike world that is every bit as compelling as the world's in Dürer's pictures. Thank you so much for coming on to Travel Through Time, Philip Hoare. I'm really pleased to be able to talk to you today. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here. You've written this truly extraordinary book about the artist uh, Albrecht Dürer. Um, but before we start talking about him, I'd like to ask you uh, a more general question. Um, you are a professor of creative writing, I believe. And one of the, the striking things, one of the things that makes your book so uh, wonderful and original is the way that it is written, which is with a huge amount of imagination and, and flair. And I just wanted you to talk, talk a bit about writing non-fiction in a fictionalised way or, or in a creative way. So can you just talk a little bit about that, how that works for you and how you think it should be done and why? Well, I'm glad you, you talk about it being written in a fictional way because that's sort of how I felt about it. I felt I was inhabiting Jura's head. So to put oneself in one's subject's physical place, I felt I had to inhabit him as a, as a person um, and especially as an artist to, to see through his eyes. Um, and... I really hate the term nonfiction. I was with Jeff Dyer at a festival in New Zealand and he said, because he writes quotes, nonfiction. And he says, you wouldn't co call poetry nonfiction. And yet it is, you know. So, which I, I'm not trying to sound pretentious, but to define something by what it is not, you're starting out on a negative basis. So history is totally subjective. I mean, history is a story. The clue is in the word. So how would you define, if you had to give it a term, this kind of writing? Because it's very much 
Um, you know, I, if, if you think of Hilary Mantel, she, she's someone I feel who goes across those, you know, straddles those boundaries. She does write fictionalised history, but it is based on absolutely rigorous uh, academic research and it's extremely accurate. But as you say, it is a version of the story and all history, no matter how academic and, and correct and accurate and lacking in imagination, I suppose, it's all a version of the story. We don't know, you know, it's all just looking at it from an angle, isn't it? It totally is. And, and what's interesting about writing about an artist is that the, the artist has told a version of their life in images. And that's very specifically true with Dürer, who, who created his own self-portraits from the age of 13 till the year he died. So you can chart a version of Albert Dürer through the images, he, the images he creates of himself, which, of course, is what he wants us to see. And additionally with Dürer, we have his journals for some parts of his life. So they give us another narrative, another aspect of the way he wants to be seen. So all these stories, they're always just facets of the way someone wants to be seen. And what I'm writing is the way I want you to, you to see me as well, because I want you to see me as someone who has tried to get into Dürer as well. So I want you to feel... Um, comfortable and semi-secure in what I'm telling you. So you have to believe what I'm saying. But at the same time, I like, uh, and someone actually the other day described my book as a dream. <laughs> and it yeah, is that's slightly, that's kind of what it is. It's a dream of Dürer. But also to leave the space, so have enough ambiguity to leave the space for the reader to join in the dream or ha have... That I think that's very important. And I think I love those his, those kind of history books, which, you know, for me, being a historian, it's just all about imagining what it was like to be there then. And, and there's so many different ways of doing that. And I think then there's so many different ways of expressing it. And it's very much a, it's almost like a dialogue with the reader where you're kind of giving them a bit and then drawing back and, and allowing them to fill in the other gaps because it, you know, we don't actually know, as you say. I love what you say there. In fact, also my favourite comments from people responding to the book have been the notion that there that you do leave that space, which is the space for the reader's imagination. Virginia Woolf t spoke about reading as being an active, not a passive act. So the gap between myself and the reader and the subject, you, it, that's really important to have that space where you can think about what the way you think about this. Um, if you didn't have that, it would be like a lecture. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, also, isn't that the difference between films and books? You know, with a book, it, it, you're creating the pictures in your head, where with, with a film, it's all been done for you. And obviously you can have your reactions and, and, you know, it can provoke other thoughts. But that's why I think reading is better than watching, because it gives you that freedom. Yeah, fascinating. Um, okay, so so that plays into what you were just talking about was, you know, Dürer did all these self-portraits and, and very much curated the way that we see him. And it, it, that plays very much into that Renaissance idea of self-fashioning, doesn't it? Which was, I suppose, quite a new idea at that point. Absolutely, because he really is. I mean, he is the first artist of the Northern Renaissance, really, or, or the foremost artist of the Nor Northern Renaissance. And that's because 
he, he went at least twice to Italy. So he sort of picked up on what was happening there. But then kind of, for me, I find it really satisfying the way he translates the kind of ideas that are being explored by those Italian artists in the most extraordinary way. I mean, just extraordinary, limitless uh, imagination. But he brings it back to Europe and he gives it that sort of slight sense of darkness, the sense of there's something, I mean, there's something very German about him, obviously, even though he's Hungarian by descent, by direct descent, he's only a generation down from his father who is born in Hungary. So there is that that northernness, there's the slight, slightly oppressive sense, which I find, you know, which I really like, the, the kind of, you always have the sense that something like the Grimm's fairy tales are lurking there in a way. And also the kind of accuracy, and it's sort of difficult not to be drawn into national stereotypes, but the kind of accuracy with which we would imbue German culture now, you know. I was always thinking, Vorsprung der Technik. And Kraftwerk, I kept thinking of Kraftwerk. Yeah, I was absolutely. Of <laughs> and so there's something very satisfying about that. I don't know why. Uh, maybe it's the northern European Viking genes in me, but um, I really love that. Um, but it's also very specific to him and to that geographical area. And, and as you say, he went to Italy, which is where, you know, the Renaissance was sort of happening and born and, you know, was this huge explosion of culture. But he obviously took certain aspects and learned a lot and was very influenced by his travels and he, he visited Venice and and then came back and, and made it his own. And, and it became, a, you know, a very different thing in Northern Europe, as you say. And his, I mean, that's one of the reasons he's so important, isn't it? Because he was just so original. So can you tell us a little bit about his art and why he is so important? I mean, Jiras creates, it's a much overused word, but he creates iconic or iconographic images, which, I think the listeners will really know, even if they don't know them, uh, his his rhinoceros, which he produced as as a woodcut print in 1515, is the most rhinoceros of rhinoceroses. Um, the way he portrayed nature, the, the hair, the crouching hair that he painted, um, the way he portrayed himself um, in these series, especially three very famous uh, oil paintings or self-portraits, um, the sense of observation, recording, but also creation of this entire world which is fantastical. It's both very accurate and also spins out almost into infinity. Um, you see that in the way the world is reflected in his eyes, and it's the same world that's reflected in his hair's eyes. And that's really what connects connects us to Jura. We we see ourselves in his eyes. And of course, this um, really um, close observation of nature was also happening, starting to happen in um, other disciplines, scientific disciplines. So it's a quite an important moment um, culturally. Um, your book is very much about Jura, but it's also very much about the way that Jura has been received and thought of in um, the following centuries. And he really is a sort of cult figure who comes up again and again and again throughout history. People become obsessed with him. So can you just briefly tell us about 
about that and why, um, you know, who, who, who in particular did he influence? Well, I suppose because he so seems to intensely record and portray a certain sort of Germanness, which is attractive to a lot of different people, to artists, to philosophers, to painters. Um, and in Dürer's case, it's such a powerful thing because he's created, partly because it's so personified, because we have him looking on at us, inviting interpretation. So it's really why at the end of the 18th century, for instance, Goethe really picks up on Dürer as the personification of this romanticised sense of Germany and of Northern Europe. And that's got a lot to do with the way he portrays nature, um, the natural world, the, 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 the forests. And that really ties in. You can really see that in the work of Caspar David Friedrich in a very specific group of, of, of uh, painters called, who called themselves the Nazarenes, who actually dressed like Jura in the early 19th century. They walked around in sort of blousy shirts uh, 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 and even had their hair like Jura. That moves through the 19th century through Nietzsche and Wagner, who venerate Jura. Uh, he's, a, he's such a visual uh, embodiment of the kind of things they're thinking about in their philosophies and in their music. And then more darkly in the 20th century, it becomes part of the way uh, the fascist regime uh, in, in, in Germany portray him as the most German of German artists. And he's one of the few prescribed as opposed to proscribed artists of the time. But at the same time, you have writers preeminently such as Thomas Mann, who is, who sees what's happening to Jura? The see the he's the way that he sees the way that Jura is being used by the fascists, and is makes a determined attempt, a determined artistic literary attempt, to rescue Jura from that um, uh, that 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 kind of perversion of Jura's aesthetic, uh, and that carries on in the New World. Thomas Mann like many German Jews, flees to, well, he's not Jewish, but his wife's Jewish, um, flees to to America. And it sort of links up with the great American modernist poet, Marianne Moore, who almost portrays Dürer as a kind of suitor, almost as though he talks, she talks about his magnificence in apparel, almost as though he's, he's a beau of hers, but at the same time uses his images of the natural world, of a romantic past, um, and recreates them in a in a modernistic way. In a, her, her 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 work is very like Jura's in many ways. Um, uh, and then it spins on to the late twentieth century when Andy Warhol uh, is using Jura. Warhol's grave actually is carved with Jura's other really great famous images of 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 praying hands. Uh, a much probably one of the most reproduced images actually in, in art. And then that segues into pop art, into the way that uh, Warhol uses images. So, and even now, Anson Kiefer, uh, Gavin Turk, um, various people, Ellen Gallagher, um, are uh, still still uh, picking up on, on what Jura has, has put out there and this kind of time-travelling idea of, of the way images 
uh, can carry through through time. Uh, Timothy Morton, the great uh, modern eco-philosopher, spoke about all art is from the future. And that's what it seems. It seems as though Dewar's art was from the future. He imagined a golden age of art. And he was almost as though he was looking towards Thomas Mann or Anselm Kiefer. Uh, uh, I like when you described him as a science fiction artist, because his, his some of the pictures are completely, as you say, they're full of natural accuracy, but they're also full of fantasy and imagination and this just crazy world that he creates. Um, really amazing to have that longevity, isn't it? I mean, there's not there's not many, there can't be many comparable figures who have that staying power. Yeah, I, 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 I think you're really, uh, that's so true. I mean, perhaps Leonardo, but partly because there's the whole narrative behind it. So we have, we have quite a rounded sense of him as a person. Very, very powerful. Um, wonderful. Well, let's get now um, into the main topic that we need to be talking about, which is, of course, um, if you could travel back in time, um, Philip, which year would you travel back to? So it's 1520. Can you tell us a bit about what's happening in 1520? Give us a sketch of Jura, where, um, you know, what's he been doing up to that point and what, what's the sort of general situation that he's in? So he's living in Nuremberg, which is really one of the nexus points of modern Europe. It's, it is like Silicon Valley. It's the place where the first globes are made. Uh, there's a hundred printing presses in operation in Nuremberg astronomical instruments are being made there. Uh, the first accounts of the New World are published there, Columbus's accounts of the New World. It's really um, at the centre of, of modern Europe. There's centre of trade, centre of ideas, centre of power, centre of art in the north. And has he lived there all his life? Is that where he's from? He was born there in 1471, um, the son of a, a Hungarian immigrant who'd become a goldsmith, who trained Dürer as, as a boy, as a goldsmith himself. But at the age of around 1314, Dürer decides he wants to become an artist. He's very heavily influenced by the art that's happening, um, probably a lot by the Flemish artists, who were the first artists to start using oil paint as opposed to the like tempura or gouache being used in in the south in Italy so there's a new kind of hard edge to art uh, it's a way it's it's more permanent in some ways there's something that really ties into this new technological age it's this kind of a, a hard-edged way of recording the world and part of that is because of the colours, isn't it? And the where they were getting the pigments from. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because that's obviously very important. Nuremberg being this big centre of trade, they're able to access. And I think that's difficult to imagine. You know, nowadays, if you want to paint a picture, you just go and buy the oil paints or order them online. But in those days, you had to actually, as the artist, had to get hold of the pigments or the raw materials, the minerals, whatever they were, and then actually make them physically yourself. So can you just tell us a bit about that? Absolutely. And uh, the, the very interesting thing about Jura is that because he is at that centre of the sort of trade. So, you know, he, he, he can access ultramarine, for instance, which is the most it's, it's more expensive than gold uh, as a pigment. Um, 
and those those uh, he has to grind up those uh, 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 pigments himself, uh, mix them with oil, and um, and use them there. But the other thing about the, the pigments is that how they have an almost alchemical quality. You know, there's dragon's blood, which is mythically supposed to be obviously a dragon, but it's it's from a from a, from a, from ground mineral. Uh, there, there's a sense that there's something rather like the way that uh, Victorian the Victorian public believed that photographic images of ectoplasmic apparitions were really ghosts of the dead. So paint. And the, what, what an artist could do with those pigments seemed to be almost like a, a, a Mephistophelian uh, contract because there's something there's something strange about that. Uh, someone able to create images so so accurate, so disturbing. Like when Durer painted his self-portrait, his dog would bark at it apparently because he thought <laughs> it was really was his master. But the use of the pigments is really interesting because Dura's money is coming generally coming from very wealthy people, clearly. Um, so from the emperor uh, Maximilian downwards to merchant princes, dukes, whatever. And these are people who are also the venture capitalists of the day because they are mining some of these pigments um, uh, and importing them. And it's it's as though Dura, it, they're, they're almost, <laughs> I kind of visualise them almost like pushes in a way because they're creating this extraordinary substance which Jura must have and to pay for them Jura has to paint them so there's this strange yeah. sort of cycle circular of, yeah uh, Patronage. Uh, 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 yeah um wonderful so you mentioned briefly there the the emperor so the uh, at this point Nuremberg is part of the holy roman empire which is this sort of huge amorphous um area um of Europe, and um, he 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 has other patrons, not 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 just the emperor. Um, so now I think now we have this idea of of where he is and what he's doing. Take us to your first scene, and then we can look in a bit more detail. So scene one, it, it's summer, and we're in Nuremberg. He's in a really uncertain state. Uh, his best friend Willibald Perkheimer says that he's really he's really kind of colloquially messed up because Maximilian, his his uh, imperial patron, the Holy Roman Emperor, has died. Uh, and he's a sort of an interregnum between uh, Maximilian's death and the uh, uh, and his heir, his nephew, Charles, who's about to take the throne. Although Jura is the most famous artist of the Northern Renaissance, he's also never sure of his income. It's always dodgy he is a freelance you know um, he's a journeyman and uh, so he's worried about his money he's worried about his money then suddenly Nuremberg is in lockdown uh, there's a an emergency civic administration because of a new wave of the plague which has hit the city this happens actually throughout Jura's uh, life he's often sort of leaving the city because of um, waves of the plague which which are happening all the time throughout his lifetime is a constant threat it's one of the reasons why his visions of the apocalypse with those skeletal figures is so powerful because the presence of death is always there so he he's leaving the city because of the plague and also because he's going to go and try and see the new emperor to be charles 
who is going to be crowned in Aachen in, in Germany, now Germany, but then still the Low Countries and part of the Holy Roman Emperor, of course, Empire, of course. And so Dura leaves Nuremberg on what ends up in being a, a year-long absence. He goes with his wife and, and their maid. Um, they travel partly by river through Europe. So it's this kind of watery journey. It's the safest way and the quickest way to travel. Uh, along with all the other sort of merchant princes who these incredibly wealthy people, they might as well be taking their helicopters out of Nuremberg and flying, <laughs> flying west. So these people are his circle. So it, it, can you just talk a little tiny bit about the status of the artist in this period? Because obviously, you know, he's the son of a tradesman. He's not he's not noble in any way, but because of his incredible success as an artist, he has risen. Uh, so can you talk about that? How does that work? That's really interesting because, as you say, the artist is changing in status now. That's why when he portrays himself, especially in the second portrait of himself, he paints when he's coming back from Italy with a pair of kid gloves. He's indicating these aren't the hands of an artisan, that they're the hands of an artist, of mm. someone who is, he's not an employee any longer. He's sort of self-dignifying himself. In fact, he says when he's in Italy, he says, here I'm regarded as, as an artist, back home I'm regarded as a parasite. But that's changing with him, partly because of the power of his art, the way that uh, this currency of art has changed. Art is being bought for being art rather than just religious imagery or, or portraits of, of, of yourself to, to self-aggrandize. We're, we're talking about art as a, new, as a new commodity, exactly the way that people, very rich people, define themselves now by the art that they buy. Um, it's the same, exactly the same thing is happening now. There's a lot of money. Jacob Fugger, who was one of the um, Jura's uh, most important patrons, is still considered, even today's money, one of the richest people who's ever lived. Goodness me. And the, uh, the another aspect of this, uh, which I found really interesting, is that there's also this growing middle class. It's a huge, it's one of the most important features, social features of this period is this growing middle class, the growth of trade and mercantile activity. And of course, there's this new group of people who want to live in beautiful houses. They Obviously, they're, they're not noble. They haven't got as much money as people like Fugger, but they have got money to spend. They've got disposable income. They want to live in comfort and luxury. They want to decorate their houses with art. And this is where Dura does something completely and utterly innovative. So can you talk about that? So I think that's a really interesting aspect of this story. Well, of course, and that's what the technology of Nuremberg allows him to do, which is to print his own work. He's the first artist to publish his own work. And produce it on a, an, on a huge scale. So instead of painting one picture for a very wealthy patron, he's... Tell us, how does he do it? How does he well, do of it? course, I mean, it drives him mad because it takes him at least six months to paint a portrait. Um, it's very time ineffective and very cost ineffective. So because he's been brought up in Nuremberg, he's very, you know, that he, he's completely aware of the printing press, the power of the printing press. So the power of the printing press is the printed word, of course. And that's what freaks Martin Luther out, because he thinks you can't give people that much information. It's just like the Internet now. At the same time, what Dura does, which freaks 
Martin Luther out even more is gives he gives them images, commodified images, images which can be printed in the hundreds and thousands, wood woodcuts and engraving, metal engravings. And Dürer sets up this network of agents across Europe um, selling his prints. They're sort of on franchises. Dürer himself, as he moves off on his travels for that year-long period after leaving Nuremberg in July 1520, takes his, takes his uh, a huge stack of prints with him as currency. So that the currency of his fame, but that also the currency by which he, he can lubricate his way through through Europe and so he gives them away he trades them I mean we have to remember now that up until this point that the human produced image the anthropogenic image has been really restricted to very few people you know very few people if you're an ordinary person even if you're a middle class person up until now and the middle class is a new phenomenon anyway most of the images you would see would be religious ones in church, possibly in illuminated books. I mean, very, very few images apart from that. Um, suddenly, what Dürer is doing, he's creating the fine art print. You know, it's a bit like the Athena of his day in a way, you know, because people are pasting them on their wardrobes, on their walls. The, he, he actually recommends people colour them in. So it's like really? coming by numbers. Yeah, I didn't know that. That's 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 amazing. So and and those images specifically that happens with his uh, sequence of uh, as start he starts printing in about fourteen ninety eight the the apocalypse. So this is a time when people are expecting the apocalypse. You know they're actually preparing um, uh, tall towers because they think the deluge is coming. Uh, uh, actually, some councils actually have have stipulated that you know you should set up offices and tall towers for because this great deluge is coming. And of course, Dura dreams of the deluge. He, in in, a, in one famous nightmare, he sees this strange eruption of water falling from the sky and then seeming to bounce back up, almost like a nuclear cloud, a mushroom cloud. Dura gives gives an image to the fears of people in a way. Um, so so the, the, the strange dragons, the other bizarre images of the book of Revelations, he, he absolutely creates in black and white though. This is the important thing. He does it in black and white. And Erasmus, the philosopher says, Dürer does in black and white what other artists can only do in colour. And that's so true. You look at those images, it's like, they're like CGI. Yeah, they're so powerful. Um, just let, can I just read this little bit out of your book? Because this was one of the most astonishing things related to that. And then we, we must move on to scene two. So he he starts to make etchings as well. I don't know when that was, perhaps a little bit later on. Um, and he is able to do it in such detail. So it's it says in your book that, Ruskin, who, who was obviously much later, told his apprentices to copy half an inch of Melancholia, which is one of Dürer's most famous etchings, and he knew it was beyond their means. When a modern American engraver tried to replicate a Dürer, it took him 40 hours to etch an image one inch wide, even using the highest level of magnification and mental focus. He was never able to fit in quite as many lines as Dürer had. 
I just think that that really it, it encapsulates in a nutshell why this man is still being talked about and admired. And I mean, th he obviously had artistic talent of a scale that is really, really hardly ever seen. Technical talent as well. Absolutely. I looked at a at a at a, a first print, so first print run of the image now known as the knight, the death and the devil. To Dura, it was only known as the rider. Um, and it's the image of a knight uh, riding on his horse with his dog, his faithful dog running alongside him through a darkened valley, a crevice, tree hung, sort of shattered landscape in which the devil has worms coming over his eyes and the the death is holding an hourglass. And I looked at this print, I was looking at it last week, uh, the original print, and it's beyond explanation. You look and look and look at it and you think you're drawn deep. It's rather like the, when you're a kid, where if you read a book like, you know, the, the Tales of Narnia, you imagine this fantasy uh, kingdom and you're drawn into it. And you know, it's the never ending because you just go in and in and in. That's what these images are like. You can't see how he did it. It's almost techni still technologically inexplicable to an extent. Yeah, slightly supernatural. Yeah. Um, so uh, let's go to your second scene. Uh, he's off on this journey um, and he reaches the low countries um, with his satchel full of his prints and his wife trailing behind him. Take us to, take us to where, where he is. So he ends up, they're all going to the coast because that's the healthy place to be. And the coast of the Holy Roman Empire is now known as uh, the Netherlands, as the Low Countries. Um, so they base themselves in Antwerp. And Antwerp is a great place for an artist because that's where the, a lot of the pigments are coming in. So he can get his fix there. And also a lot of his you know, fellow Nuremberg's, the wealthy people, uh, have arrived there. And he's out there drinking and gambling. He's a great drinker and a gambler. He likes to spend his money um, uh, and he's having a good time, um, partly because there he is appreciated too. He sometimes thinks in Nuremberg they take him for granted, but in Antwerp, when he has, there are banquets thrown in his honour. Everyone rises to clap him as he comes in. He's just, you know, he's like the superstar that he isn't really at home. You know, it's kind of a, a typical story really. And so, yeah, so he's there, and but he's waiting and it's expensive because hanging around, you know, hotel bills, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And he's waiting for Charles to, to arrive. Charles keeps changing the date of his coronation. It's really bugging everyone. And everyone's getting there because they all want to lobby for their own uh, uh, interests with, with, with the new empire, emperor. Does he have any idea what his chances are of persuading Charles to give him? A... Well, I think he thinks it's good because he knows uh, he knows his he knows his value. He knows his value. That's the great thing you see from his writings when he writes about his art. He knows what he's doing. He knows that he has a great market. He knows that no one else can do what he's doing. So, so he's uh, he's aware of his value. Um, but like everyone else, he has to he has to press his case. So they're all hanging around waiting for this to happen and, and suddenly Jura hears that a whale has been stranded on the coast of Zeeland, um, which is that fractured part of the Netherlands, which is not quite sea and not quite land. It's a, a watery, strange place. Um, 
parts of it then are still islands. They're, they're not so much islands now. They're being joined to the mainland uh, by, by draining. But So here's this tale of this great leviathan that's been stranded on those strange watery shores. And the story goes that it's a mile long and the villagers are already afraid that its it, it stink is going to poison them. This kind of miasma will infect the air. And it's a, it's, a, it's a fearful thing. And Dürer, of course, is famous for his rhinoceros. His rhinoceros has gone into eight, eight editions. It's really one of his best sellers. So I'm projecting that he is thinking this could be a real, you know, a big new sensation. And he's already been, while, while he's in Antwerp, he's already been exchanging his prints uh, for other natural curiosities and so this is obviously something which is well it's a, a general feature of that time people began to collect these cabinets of curiosity where they would have you know um ostrich eggs and um so just tell us briefly about that before we go to zealand yeah it's quite funny because um roger fry the great bloomsby critic who who wrote a who wrote a preface and edited um uh, Jura's diaries when they came out in 1913 completely lost his temper with Jura. He thought he was a big kid, continually like swapping his pictures for what Fry thought of sort of trashy bits of. Yes, but in those days, that would have been the first time anyone had seen that kind. Of, I mean, all this stuff was coming from the New World and from Africa, and you know, this was basically science wasn't it i mean it was it was natural philosophy the study of the natural world absolutely now in fact jura's account of the aztec treasure which has been sent by cortez to charles is one of the best accounts we have of that 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 sort of that stolen gold and of course in jura's it, it's for jura that's that's what feeds his imagination the sense of these exotic objects, um, these intimations of other peoples and of other cultures and of other species too, you know, the sharks, fins he collects, the monkeys, the living monkeys and and um, uh, things like that. So it's a kind of, yes, it's the sense of the, the Wunderkammer, the, the, the cabinet of curiosities, which, as you say, is a kind of microcosm of the of the world, the new world. And he also uses these things uh, in, in his drawings and pictures as well doesn't he yeah i mean it's his studies so you'll see a little marmoset monkey which was clearly his monkey popping up at the feet of a madonna um he draws a walrus for instance which pops up in another image beetles you know uh, stag beetles with a pinch of like uh, antlers stroke antlers uh, so yes yeah, so they are the component parts i mean he draws the wing of a blue roller which is a wonderfully splendidly turquoise and magenta colored bird he draws a sole wing of a blue roller which then becomes an angel's wing they're, the, they're like the, the stock in trade they're like this cabinet that he can open up and and bring out these objects and invest his images invest his images with a sense of reality yeah and also a sense of wonder i mean that's what it's really about isn't absolutely it? that hello it's artemis at travels through time we're incredibly proud to be partnering with jordan lloyd and Colorgraph. jordan is one of the world's leading visual historians through his excellent craftsmanship he brings black and white photographs of the past to life in startling color and clarity Jordan's extraordinary work, as well as that of his contemporaries, can be found on the website colorgraph.co. 
At colorgraph.co, you'll be able to explore the process and history behind the colorization work, but most excitingly of all, you can also buy some of these beautiful photographs as museum grade fine art prints. They make an unusual and striking present for that friend or family member of yours who loves the past, and they're an excellent addition to any room. Whether it's a colorized photograph of the US Capitol building from 1846, or a candid shot of the Beatles from 1964, you're pretty sure to find something that enchants you. I know I certainly have many times. It's hard to explain really over audio just how cool these prints are, so I encourage you to have a look for yourself at colorgraph.co. What's more, Travels Through Time listeners get 10% off when they enter the code TTT at the checkout. So now um, let's move on to your third scene. Uh, it's winter and we're uh, in this very watery world of sand, bars and tides um, in Zealand. So he's, he's, he, he's on a boat. We are, it's not clear whether he's chartered this boat himself, but most of the people on board are his friends. They're very ill-prepared for what they're doing. Um, they really, really, really not, they're not really see, see aware people, as it were. So they set off for Middleburg, um, which is the main town on, 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 on the largest island in Zealand. Uh, and as they uh, draw into shore, a huge um, storm blows up. Uh, it's obviously part of the same weather system that's blown the whale onto shore, caused the whale to strand. Um, and as they approach Middleburg, the, the, the ship comes in close enough for most of the passengers to jump off onto the quayside. But then a great offshore breeze, or much more than a breeze, it blows the ship back out and everything goes into a panic. Uh, the, the, it seems as though the ship is about to sink. The captain is, it, it, it has lost control. Uh, Dura takes control in this kind of heroic way. It's really like a scene from The Tempest. You know, Shakespeare's The Tempest. He's uh, uh, all, all mayhem has broken out and the people on the on the shore think they're going to drown. They think that's it. And, and that would be the end of Dura. Um, but somehow he rests the ship as almost as though he does this single-handedly. Um, and comes back and, and the, the, the ship is brought back to shore and they get off safely. Um, but of course, that same storm has blown the whale away. Also. It's carried the whale away at a high tide. And so the whale has disappeared. Um, but the, the irony here is that um, it's almost this act of hubris that, of, of jurors to, 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 to see this whale, to see the biggest living or actually dead animal, the greatest living thing created uh, in the natural world. It's almost though he has to pay for this hubris. And and just very soon after he, he after this incident, when he gets back to Antwerp, he starts to complain of feeling feverish. Um, and gradually in his letters, in his journals, we realise that he, he seems to have caught something there. And it possibly possibly was malaria because that area was malarial um but also this sense that almost supernaturally psychically that the that the there is something about the miasma that the whale stirred up that the 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 the, the astrological signs which he believed determined his fate i mean he felt his life was ruled over by saturn the melancholy star as it was called that there's something there that seems to link now in a in a way, and this is a modern romanticization, and it's something that Thomas Mann deals with in his book, Dr. Faustus, is the sense that 
maybe Jura was working to a, an unearthly supernatural contract, this kind of Mephistophelian um, uh, contract. And in fact, I established that just before, as he was beginning his, his journey, he had to go to um, uh, the Prince Bishop of Bamberg to get a passport to pass through the um, various Holy Roman Empire lands. The real Dr. Faustus was in the castle around the same time. It's quite possible he met the real Faustus. So <laughs> that's um, a cool idea. I like that. And also yeah. the, just that this extraordinary, uh, extraordinary talent, you know, that you couldn't just have talent like that. There'd have to be a reason for it or there'd have to be a, a downside to it. And in those days, I think that's another thing that I struggle to do when I'm trying to imagine this period is how strongly they believed in uh, astrology and predestination and, and, and all of those things. They, they really, it, it really imbued every aspect of their life and, you know, a new star would appear and everyone would think, oh my gosh, this is a bad omen and it's going to, you know, this, this was a really important belief system that um, we no longer have. Yeah, and it's degree. it's as you say, it's almost impossible for us to to filter the the facts we have from them through the through the filter of what we regard as superstition. Yeah, the the four humors, you know, the humors that were said to determine the way that you acted and the way you thought and what and your health and your health as well. Your health, absolutely, your health. I mean, he's always he makes this extraordinary drawing. He he's feeling sick. He's got something wrong with his liver. He thinks, and he sends a he draws himself um, naked, except for a kind of loincloth thing, pointing to the uh, the part of his body where which is uh, to send to the doctor. I mean, obviously only Jura could do that. Um, but it's quite funny because even so, the idea of our fates being governed by the stars. Well, the stranded whales were coming up on the coast of Zealand. I mean, it was a, it was a notorious for that, that for that, for that, for that uh, fact. Um, we know that you know, well, it's still strand there, and there's a big stranding. When I was writing the book there in 2016 of sperm whales, 30 sperm whales stranded, uh, and there's an interesting scientific paper which published soon after, which posited the notion that it was actually solar storms that disrupt had disrupted their natural GPS. Uh, the same storms that were creating, solar storms that were creating uh, the aurora, aurora borealis, the aurora australis in the south, um, were actually causing the whales to come in. So this the idea of the whale's fate might have been determined by the stars. Well, and and that just that example just just shows us, I think that's a good point to end on, but it shows us that there's still plenty of room for uh, mystery and um, that there's still so much that we do not know about the natural world um, today. I think I think that's a beautiful idea. So there's one more question, one last question uh, to ask, which is uh, if you could have picked something up from one of these um, these places that we visited in 1520 and brought it back with you um, and kept it in your living room, what would it be? I actually did pick it up and it was in Vienna in the university library there, which holds in this crystal glass box edged in silver. It holds a lock of Jura's hair. <gasps> and uh, I did actually hold this uh, box, but if I could bring it back, 
I'd open it up and take the hair out and its beautiful sort of red gold lock from Jura's hair and I would regenerate Jura from it. Oh my <laughs> goodness. I, I get him to paint my portrait. <laughs> that is without question the that that's the best memento that we've ever had on Travels Through Time. That's absolutely brilliant. I love that idea. Um thank you so much, Philip. It's it's been an adventure, uh, a joyous adventure. And yeah, I urge everyone to read your book, Albert and the Whale. It's it's completely and utterly captivating. It's it's been such a great pleasure. Thanks so much. That was me. Violet Moller chatting to Philip Hall the other day. Albert and the Whale really is an extraordinary book. It's one of the most unusual and beautiful I've ever read. And it's on sale now, published by the wonderful people at Fourth Estate. Jura fans can also look forward to the upcoming exhibition at the National Gallery this November. If you would like any more information about this episode, or any of our other ones, please visit our website, tttpodcast.com and sign up to our mailing list. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.